become corrupted in Urdu became Beat and amongst us Americans people from the West the closest thing we could find in English to Beat was bath so we understood it as some kind of a spiritual bath that's how it circulated amongst us a spiritual bath so, okay So we took this bayah, not knowing even what was being said. Azadji was in one room and they tied towels together to make a kind of a rope. And there were people in that room with him who were Urdu speakers. So he was explaining to them but we, the converts, we were in the other room, not understanding in Urdu, we just heard these sounds and <laughs> you know, we just hold on to the rope. And after they finished, they came and said, okay, okay, let go of the rope now. We let go. I said, is that it? They said, yeah, that's it. When I asked, um, <clears throat> the private secretary of Hazrat G. What did this spiritual bath mean? Bath. What did it mean? He said, it means that any major decision that you have to make in your life, you must inform Hazrat G. And he will advise you as to what to do. He is your guide. Yeah, and where does Hazrat G live? He lives in India, you know, in a town called Nizamuddin. And a letter, I said, a letter takes at least one week in those days to get to India, and it would have to be translated into Urdu so Hazrat G would be able to read it when he got time and then he would make an answer which would then have to be translated back into English so maybe another week would pass and then it would be sent back to me so three weeks I had to wait to make major decisions in my life I said doesn't sound right it doesn't sound right I can understand if I was there in Nizamuddin close by to go get his advice makes sense but three weeks I've got a major decision to make in my life now and I have to wait three weeks to get an answer that was difficult to swallow also what happened was that before we left in London, I went to, I found an Islamic bookstore, I went there, and I found all these books on Sirah, 
fiqh and different in English. I bought them. While on the Jamaat, we had one book called Tablighi Nisab. Tablighi Nisab. And we just read this book. In the course of the four months, maybe I read it four times. Anyway, so it was a chance to get some other books. I went and bought these other books. I came into the masjid with this big stack of books in my hand. And um, the secretary saw me. Secretary of Azadi saw me said, stop me. Come. He said, um, where did you get these books from? I said, I got them from a you know, store down. He said, listen, you don't know the intention of the people who wrote these books. You know? The bookstore was Jamati Islami. And there is difference amongst Jamati Islami from India, Pakistan, Jamaat Tabligh, they have you know, different ideologies, differences in their... So he advised, don't read these books. Not in clear words, but indirectly, that's what he was telling me. You can't be sure of who wrote the books. If it's somebody from the Jamaat, you can be sure because, you know, they're trustworthy, etc. So, he advised me not to read these books. And um, the explanation he gave, I found again, difficult to swallow. And then I told him, listen, you know, I'm, I think I would like to go and study Arabic. You know, I want to go to maybe Mecca or Medina, Arabia, study Arabic. He said, you don't need to do that. He said, the light of Islam has left Mecca and Medina and is now concentrated in Nizamuddin and it is so concentrated there and powerful that when Hazrat G is in his home there Hindus will walk down the street and when they come parallel to his house the light will hit them and they will just come into it, come walking into his house and make shahada. You know, <clears throat> I had majored in biochemistry in university. So I didn't really take well to fairy tales. Right? What sounded to me like fairy tales, I just couldn't swallow. Right? So again, an issue. When I returned to Toronto, which is after the four months, I moved next to the masjid, the one of the two masjids that were there, East End, and the Imam of the masjid, I lived in the same house with him, downstairs apartment, he had the upstairs, and I started to study with him. He's the Imam. He started to teach me from a book, Fiqh Sunnah. 
And I started to notice differences because when I was on the Jama'ah, after I had asked all these questions and made all my notes, they informed me that in Islam there are four madhabs and you must follow one. They are all correct, therefore, and you must follow one of them. Okay, so then which one should I follow? They said, well, most Muslims in the world are Hanafis. Most Muslims in the world are Hanafis. The first of the great Imams was Abu Hanifa. Two points. Thirdly, the title given to Abu Hanifa in Urdu was Imam Azam. Arabic Al Imam Al A'zam, the greatest Imam. So I said, Ah, I guess it's best to be a Hanafi. So I accepted that I should be a Hanafi. And in accepting that I was going to be a Hanafi, I had to learn the Salah for women who are Hanafis. Hanafis have a different salah for, for women than that for men. And the difference is enough that you can't just tell somebody to do it, you have to show them. Because the women's salah involves a degree of acrobatics. So I figured I better learn it so I could teach it to my wife when I got back. So, back to the Imam of the Masjid in Toronto. As I studied with him, asking the similar questions to what I had met in the different masjids in England, I started to notice differences. I had learned one thing, do, don't do, and then I came to find some other don't do's and do's. But the Imam there in Toronto, he was teaching from a book and he was quoting Quran and Sunnah. So that gave me a sense of confidence. Whatever he was saying, he was bringing some evidence for it which was different from do, don't do, do, don't do. So when I asked him, you know, so what is this book, Fiqh Sunnah? He said it is Shafi. I didn't have much of a problem because I could see there were evidences there. But when I befriended some Moroccans, some brothers from Morocco who had migrated to Canada, and they started to do some other things. They're praying with their hands by their sides. I said, well, what's this? I said, we're Maliki. 
okay, now I have a problem here. You know, I said to them, listen, you know, I thought Islam was one. You know, that this was different from Christianity that has all these, you know, Protestants and Catholics and, you know, Presbyterians and Anglicans and... Uh, I said, it's different. What's going on here? I said, no, 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 it's all one. It's all one. All of those madhabs, all four madhabs, they're all correct. They're all correct. You just have to follow one. But they're all correct. I had a problem with that. Because I remembered the <coughs> fiqh ruling in the Shafi madhab, that if a man accidentally touches a woman, both he and the woman have lost their wudu. And the Hanafi madhab, if a man accidentally touches a woman, neither of them loses their wudu. Now if I am going to accept that both of them are correct, it means that it is possible for you to be in a state of wudu and out of a state of wudu at the same time. So for me, that means you have to shut off your brain. Your brain is telling you, no, this is illogical. But you just shut it off because you have accepted they're both right. So to me, this is like the Christian doctrine of Trinity. That one plus one plus one equals one. You know? For you to accept that, you have to shut your brain off. Your brain tells you, no, one plus one plus one equals three. We all learned that from grade one. Right? So, I said, I'm sure this is not really what Islam teaches. I'm sure. Because what I studied before becoming a Muslim, you know, comparative studies of all these different systems and Islam, where it showed Islam was so logical, so reasonable, so practical, so real. And then I'm hearing this other story. I said, I really do need to go and study Arabic. Go to the sources where Islam arose, the final message, and learn the deen from there. And Alhamdulillah, when I made that decision, two scholarships were offered by Medina University to Canada. Nobody wanted them. Nobody was interested. When I and another brother, Abdullah Hakim Quick, wanted to accept it, people were telling us, no, don't. It's a waste of your time. To go study there, they're studying old, ancient knowledge, which is in old books, which are dusty, and the pages have turned yellow, and you know, it's totally irrelevant. How are you going to look after a family and all this, you go study there? 
That was their advice. Don't go. But for us, we felt there was no option. We had to go. Because at that point, though I had come into Islam from disbelief, darkness into light, as I tried to grow in Islam, I found myself in more darkness. Not darkness like the previous, it was a different type of darkness, but there was darkness there. Darkness in the sense that I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't understand why these things existed. So Alhamdulillah, we went to Medina, studied in the Arabic department, went into the university, did our degrees, and Alhamdulillah, all the darkness that had existed was cleared up. Alhamdulillah. So this was the second phase. I came to learn, to understand, that Abu Hanifa wasn't a Hanafi. Imam Malik wasn't a Maliki. Imam al-Shafi'i wasn't a Shafi'i. And Ahmed ibn Hanbal wasn't a Hanbali. It was a big eye-opener. That's the core. So what were they? That's the question. If Abu Hanifa wasn't a Hanafi, what was he? He was a follower of the madhab of Rasulullah sallallahu That's the reality. And likewise, all of the Imams. That's what I came to understand. That was the enlightenment. That they were following the madhab of Rasulullah sallallahu Just as Abu Bakr did. Because you have to ask, well, what was the madhab of Abu Bakr? Because if we're going to follow a madhab of an individual, why not the best of the ummah? We should all be Abu Bakris. <laughs> right? Isn't that a better choice? The best of the ummah, Abu Bakr? So, what was the madhab of Abu Bakr? It was the madhab of Rasulullah What was the madhab of Omar? Madhab of Rasulullah. Madhab of Uthman and Ali. That's the reality. That was the enlightenment. And alhamdulillah, from those days till today, I feel the responsibility of sharing that realization, that enlightenment that came from my period there in Medina and I carried with me throughout my life till today. And this is where, as Muslims, we have a duty to seek knowledge of Islam as well as knowledge of aspects of life and all the other things that we need to function here effectively but fundamentally we need to seek knowledge of Islam and that's why Rasulullah had said Talabul ilmi farida ala kulli muslim seeking knowledge is obligatory for every Muslim because Islam is a religion of light 
of enlightenment. We're not afraid to seek knowledge. Nobody is telling us, don't read the Quran, you'll get confused. And Christianity, commonly, Christian preachers, ministers, will tell the people, don't read the Bible. You'll get confused. Just follow us. Whatever we tell you, you follow. We have understood. But if you read that Bible, there's a book written by one convert to Islam called, The Bible Led Me to Islam. He said, I decided to read the Bible. They were saying, don't read it. And I decided to read it. And when I read it, I realized that Christianity was not what Jesus taught. And not what the earlier prophets taught. And it pointed me to Islam. He found Islam. Through the Bible itself. And just to conclude my presentation, I know some of you may be wondering, okay, so what happened to your family? What happened to your parents? Well, I'm happy to inform you that both my father and mother, they both accepted Islam. And they accepted Islam after 21 years of da'wah. Even though they were that close, it took them 21 years to finally decide to become Muslims. And that's just advice to uh, those who accept Islam, convert to Islam, and they're eager for their family members to accept Islam. And they become frustrated when they don't. My advice is patience. And for you likewise. With your non-Muslim friends, you've given them the message you feel, that you've, they've, you, they've, everything has been explained. So why don't you become a Muslim? Well, you have to be patient. When the time is right, they will. But you continue. To give the message, as long as they're willing to hear it, to receive it, etc., you continue. And you try different ways. See, because sometimes we find only one way. And we keep going on that same way, but it's not working. So we have to find another way. You know, this is the proper way to make da'wah. People come to me and they ask me, tell me one thing I can tell a non-Muslim for them to become Muslim. <laughs> There's no such thing. You're looking for what they call the silver bullet. The bullet that finishes off the enemy. You, know? you shoot the vampires with that bullet. You, know? you hit them, they're dead. There's no such bullet. In medicine, we have no such pill. Every sickness you take this pill, everybody gets it. Well, no. People are different. What may work with one person doesn't work with another person. So my general advice for those of you that have awoken to the responsibility of carrying this message to our non-Muslim friends, neighbors, relatives, in-laws, whatever, is that it is better to have them tell you what they understand about Islam. Just like when you go to the doctor 
The doctor doesn't start preparing a prescription for you as soon as you sit down and he hands you the prescription. No, no, it doesn't work like that. He lets you tell him what's wrong. You know, after you've heard what's wrong, then you can prescribe the cure. So similarly, when you're giving dawah to your friends, colleagues, etc., let them tell you what they understand. They're here. They're living. They have, amongst Muslims, they've seen, they observed, and all these other kinds of things. You will be surprised to find that they may have all kinds of weird ideas. I remember once when I was flying back from Toronto to UK, uh, a young man was sitting next to me. And, you know, we started chatting from the UK, but originally he's from India. He was a Hindu by birth raised as a Hindu. He said to me, you know, I got a lot of Muslim friends in the UK, neighbors, but there's a question that has been bothering me. And I wanted to ask, but I was just too shy to ask them. Can I ask you? I said, no problem. You can ask me anything. Yeah. I'm coming from the West, I've understood, I've heard, you know, you can ask me anything. I will not be upset anything. Go ahead. You know, my mother used to tell me when I was growing up, when I asked her about the Muslims in Mecca bowing down to the Kaaba, she told me, you know what? Inside the Kaaba is our God, Shiva Lingam. <laughs> I started laughing. <laughs> Incredible. You know. So this was been, this has been in his head all this time, you know. Complete misunderstanding. Inside of the Kaaba is the god Shiva Lingam. So I clarified for him. I'm not saying he became a Muslim alone because he got off the plane and then we both got off. I went on. So that was just something, a point which was in his head. You know, maybe he was impressed with so many other things about Islam. But if Muslims are worshipping the same God they're worshipping, then ah, what was the need? The point? Huh? So this is just to give you an idea that people can have all kinds of weird misunderstandings about Islam. So the best way to explain Islam is to find out what are their misunderstandings. It's like what's their illnesses. The doctor finds out what's the illness. It diagnoses the illness. So the same thing, you need to diagnose what is the problem that your colleagues, friends, neighbors, etc. have. Let them speak. You know? And be open-minded. You have to be patient. They might say some things which really blow your mind, but you just have to. Externally, be patient. Inside yourself, you might be saying, "How do we How do we How do Don't matter. Keep it inside yourself. Keep a smile on your face. Hear what they have to say. Then, after you've heard from them, then you can start now to systematically clarify the points for them. What you can't clarify, then you go and find out, do some research, get the information, bring it back to them.
This is the best way for Dawah. If there is one way, my advice would be to take this way. So that basically summarizes the two trips, journeys from darkness into light. And as I said, I started off in Jamaica, grew up in Canada, lived in Sabah, went to Saudi Arabia, lived there and went to UAE, went to Qatar. I'm now based in the Gambia, West Africa. So when I hear people very much attached to their lands, I can't relate to it. Because for me, the whole world is our land. And so I'm having no problem resettling, going anywhere. Anywhere that Islam can grow, can flourish, I can help. I'm always ready to travel in that sense. So, as I said, that is the summary. Uh, if you have any questions you would like to ask, I don't know how much time, we'll put a time limit on it. How much time can we give? Um, one question. Yeah, yeah, I know, but I'm just saying, how many, how much time? But how much time are we going to give them? It's 9.30. Before 10, okay, no problem. It's just, we, it's good to set a time frame. Okay, so are there any questions from the floor? We'll just take questions first. Okay, go ahead. I can hear you, I'll repeat. Why? Why do they put an age limit for studying in Medina University? They say 25 and under to be accepted to study. Well, they do make exceptions for exceptional situations. Because if somebody converts to Islam and he's 26, you say, no, you, then that's not fair. So they will make considerations for people who didn't have that opportunity. But in general, they found from experience that older people have more difficulty in those studies. The dropout rate among those over 25 is like double that of those under 25. So that was a decision made because you've got thousands of applications coming in. How do you decide? So you need to put some criteria to sift out and choose and then and they added after that interviews and things like this. So in the times of interviews, sometimes they may go ahead if a person shows they've made great strides in gaining knowledge elsewhere, etc., etc. They may overlook that 25 and allow them, you know, if they see great potential in a particular individual. But as a general rule, it's to sift out at least on one level, the applications, the many applications that are coming. From the sisters, you have a microphone there. Anybody would like to ask a question? 
There's a microphone. We Muslims are always accused of treating our women as second-class citizens, not giving them a chance to express themselves. And, hey, now you have a chance, please. I'm sure you have some questions. Okay, let me go to a written question. If you have difficulty, you want to write it, you know, get a piece of paper and send it up. We'll look at it. Anyway, question. Did Muhammad actually see Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? I think maybe you were sleeping, whoever wrote this one, you were sleeping when I said, <laughs> maybe you drifted off during my talk and you woke up and missed it. It's clear. The Sahaba asked Rasulullah Wasallam, did you see Allah? Clearly. And he said, no. I only saw light. Allah's veil is light, is stated in other narrations. And Aisha said the same thing. Another of the tabi'in asked her, you know, did Muhammad see Allah? She said, when he asked me that, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. No, he didn't see Allah. We will only see Allah if Allah blesses us with entering Jannah. This is when we will see Allah. That is the greatest blessing of paradise is to see Allah. Yeah. Obsessed with? With only one Imam. One Imam, meaning yes. what? One because, Madhab? Yes, only mm. one Madhab. Some people, they would mm. obsess obtaining only one Madhab. Mm. Okay. okay. Thank you. The issue of those who prefer to follow only one Imam. Is that misguidance? I would say no. If a person has the means to determine the right and the wrong with regards to the different rulings, and he decides only to follow one ruling, then this is not good. But for the mass of people who don't have the means to determine the right and the wrong, then you as an individual are obliged to follow the opinion of your local scholar. What other choice do you have? Can you go back and look into the fiqh and the hadith and determine usul al-fiqh and usul al-hadith and usul al-tafsir and can you do and then now analyze the material and extract the correct ruling and see the different no, you're not able to do all of that so what do you do you have to follow a trusted scholar that trusted scholar now 
if that trusted scholar studied under trusted scholars of one of the schools, he is labeled as a follower of that school. And you as a student is labeled also as a follower of the school. By default. Is that wrong? No. It's not wrong. In and of itself, it is not wrong. But the idea that all schools are correct in their rulings, that is not right. Where there are variational rulings, meaning the Prophet ﷺ, he did this and he did that. One school takes this, another school takes that. No problem. You can follow this or follow that. But where you have deduced rulings, where one school deduces that this is the ruling, another school deduces that that is the ruling, and they cannot coexist as options, then one is right and the other is wrong. So we call those two differences as two types of differences. They call ikhtilaf tanawwur, that is variational differences, where the Prophet ﷺ did different things, and we have the right to follow any of the things that he did. And we have ikhtilaf tadad, that is contradictory differences. And this is the one that we need to find out as best as we can what is the most correct and follow that. So whether people take the stance, I will follow the position of the trusted scholars in my area and that trusted scholar or scholars you know they don't follow any particular madhab they study the rulings of all of the various schools and choose the ones which they feel to be the most correct and that's what you learn under they may call you wahhabi right they may call you la madhabi you know, there are different names that they have, right? But know that you're following the madhab of Rasulullah wasallam, and you can't be wrong in that sense. Whatever they call you, it is irrelevant. You're following the madhab of Abu Bakr. You tell them that. You ask me, what's my madhab? My madhab is the madhab of Abu Bakr. If others have studied under scholars who are from a particular school and that's what was available to them, then Allah will judge them if they've accepted certain rulings which are incorrect. Allah will judge them based on their ability to determine the right and the wrong. If they had no ability, they're just the average person. They've not studied anything. They just come to the masjid, they listen to the imam, they listen to the local scholar, whatever. Then why? Is Allah going to hold them accountable? Why didn't you study usul al-fiqh? No. <laughs> I'm not going to ask them that question. So, 
So what we need to be is tolerant. Tolerant. Where there are differences, we recognize people's right to choose to follow what they feel is the most correct. If they're following it blindly, because that's what their parents did, their grandparents, everybody did it that way. And that's all they could do, then they're not held accountable. But if they had the ability to find out and they closed their eyes, they rejected, they didn't want to know, then they will be held accountable. That doesn't mean that they've become disbelievers, they've lost their way totally, no, no, no. But it's a mistake on their part. So we're human beings and we make mistakes. And we have to be open enough flexible enough to be able to accept people making mistakes so that way we can work together while some might feel okay i'm shafi the other one feels i don't have to follow a particular math <clears throat> we can still work together and we need that openness and one thing I always point out to people who have a problem about the quote-unquote Wahhabis. And of course, when you try to define what is a Wahhabi, basically it means whoever is not doing what we do. That's the Wahhabi. As long as you're not doing what we are agreed to do and we all are doing, you're not Wahhabi. Which is, of course, wrong but we say it means the Saudi the Saudis if all that the Saudis did in 1925 was to unify the Ummah behind one Imam we should make dua for them. Whatever else they have done and whatever, we should make dua for them. Because when they took over Mecca in 1925, know that there were four salahs going on around the Kaaba. Four different Imams leading the people who are in making tawaf in the Kaaba. Four different salahs. And that had been going on for hundreds of years. They stopped it. Now we can pray behind each other because up at that point, people were no longer praying behind each other. You're a Hanafi, you don't pray behind a Shafi. You're a Maliki, you don't pray behind a Hanbali. You, know, you only pray behind Imam from your mother. It had reached that stage. Even to the point where Hanafis ruled that it was not permissible for a Hanafi to marry a Shafi. So they stopped that. They reversed that. So if that's all they did, we should make dua for them.
because now we can pray together wherever you go in the Muslim world you pray behind whichever Imam there is in the masjid you don't have to find out are you Shafi? Alhamdulillah if only that question in this modern age what is your opinion regarding Ahmed Didat that used to refer revert many Muslims to Islam there were many non-Muslims right here can there be another Ahmed Didat? <laughs> Ahmed Didat referred to Dr. Zakir Naik as Didat Plus. Hmm? Ahmed Didat himself gave Dr. Zakir Naik the title Didat Plus. Yes. Ahmed Didat knowledge was what was available at that time he did his job etc but dr zakir naik's understanding and depth of knowledge far exceeds that of ahmed didat he has what ahmed didat had plus way more so can there be another ahmed didat yes inshallah in every age there will be someone who will be able to defend Islam and its teachings against the false teachings of other religions will be able to clarify, understand those other religions and clarify to people why Islam is the truth. Ustaz, I want to ask you that if someone does not like us, Is there a dua for people who don't like you? <laughs> you know, people are always asking me for duas, you know. Students, when exam time comes along, they all send me emails. Sir, can you tell us the dua to pass? I said, if you didn't do your studies, you know, there's no magical dua we have which will just get you through your exams. You got to do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> That's how it works, right? So, the dua for somebody who doesn't like you is your dua. You make it. There's no special dua. So you make a dua, you just ask Allah to protect you from their harm, to guide them. This is preferable. If they're doing serious harm to you, you are allowed to ask Allah to punish them. You can do that too. Guide them, punish them also. So you make whatever dua is appropriate. But of course, the gentle dua, one where you are patient with their harm, and you ask Allah to guide them, that is the superior dua. That is the one that the Prophet ﷺ used to do most of the time. When he was chased out of Taif, stoned, bleeding, he still made dua for the people of Taif. Further question? Hari ini 
You're feeling inferior, inferiority. Yeah, yeah. So I have those mates, non-Muslim. Yes, I do with it, but when he mentioned about your background, about your country, about people Muslim, they speak around us, they are Muslim, so for example, smoking and some, some, some. So how can we have a good way to guide it? How are Okay, let me just say that Islam <clears throat> is the correct way of life for human beings. It is the right way. It's the, it is the best way. It is the only way. So, regardless of how you might feel on a personal level, when you are around other people because they have degrees you don't have, or they have wealth you don't have. Or the other things that people use to judge people as being superior in society. You have to put that aside. You have to put that aside in spite of it and try to convey your message in the best way possible. One of the best ways is to befriend people. You know, if a person feels that you are their friend, then it is a lot easier to take the message to them. If you only meet them and you really don't have any relationship with them, it will always be that much more difficult to share it with them. That is just nature of human beings, you know. So we try to build some confidence, try to show Islam as best as we can in our own behavior because one of the biggest reasons for people to accept Islam is the example. So many cases where people seeing a practicing Muslim for the first time, it touches them and it leads them to Islam. If we look at Prophet Muhammad the first five people who accepted Islam, did they accept Islam because the Prophet ﷺ explained to them the details of Tawheed, of Rububiyyah, Asma'u Sifat, and Uluhiyyah? No. They accepted Islam because of who he was, his behavior, his being Al-Ameen, trustworthy. We can trust whatever he says. So they accepted it. Abu Bakr, Ali, Zaydin al-Haritha, and so on and so forth. So, we try to be the best example that we can. And when we get the opportunity, or we try to make the opportunity, we convey Islam in a gentle way. Because the Prophet ﷺ had said that gentleness, <clears throat> whenever it enters into anything, it beautifies it. And whenever you take it from anything, it makes it ugly. So gentleness in da'wah is very, very important. Uh, my name is Noor. Irene Jenna. 
I want to say thank you. You really inspired me with your dawa. I have one question to ask, as I'm just converted to Muslim, to Islam. Alhamdulillah, given hidayah by Allah. My question is, if a person is a good person throughout his or her life, but is a non-Muslim, this is the big question that new Muslims, people converting to Islam, have always, we have in the back of our minds. Will he or she go to hell or heaven? You know, Because for a lot of people, when you think back, your aunt, your uncle, you know, were very good people. They're going to hell? I don't know. You know, for Muslims, generally speaking, when they are asked that question, they say, yeah, yeah, they're going to hell. They're all going to hell. But do we have the authority to say that? We can say yes, if a person received the message of Islam, they rejected it, worshipped other than Allah in that rejection, yes, they're going to hell. But can we say for an individual, your parent, your father is going to hell, your mother is going to hell, your... No. We don't have the authority to say that. This is the reality. And in the da'wah, there's a very important point. There are a set of hadiths, which are found in Sunan al-Tirmidhi and Abu Dawood, Ibn Majah, wherein the Prophet ﷺ explained for us the case of those who never heard Islam. You know, when you ask a Christian, <clears throat> what about the people who never heard Christianity? They never heard about Jesus. Huh? Because to go to heaven, according to the Christians, you have to have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior. That's it. So then what about those people? They don't have an answer. Because whatever they say, it's going to be unfair. Because did you decide to hear about Jesus or not hear about Jesus? And many of us, in our understanding and in our da'wah, we do the same thing. So we will say, for example, the children of Muslims, they're all going to paradise. The children of the kuffar, they're all going to hell. Is that fair? Is that fair? Prophet Muhammad explained that there is a group of people. They're called Ahlul Fatra. Not Ahlul Fitra, Ahlul Fatra. Fitra is the natural practices, nature of human being, understanding Allah, and clipping our fingernails, toenails, and these things. That's the Fitra. Whereas Fatra is the gap, or the interval. Those people who never heard the message of Islam. Or they heard it in such a garbled way, there's no way they could believe in it. No way you could expect them to believe. Because it was so distorted, so warped. 
Anybody in his common mind, you know, common sense, having a mind would say, ah, it's not good religion. So what about those people? The people who were born deaf, dumb, and blind. Couldn't get the message to them. People who were born retarded, mentally challenged. They can't understand. The message came to so-and-so when he was senile. He couldn't understand anything anymore. The child who dies couldn't understand the message, even if it came to them. What happens? What about them? Allah said, Your Lord will not be unfair to anyone. He will not oppress anyone. And we will not punish anyone until the message has reached them. That's what Allah said. Until the message has reached them. A messenger sent to them. So Prophet Sallallahu explained that at the time of resurrection, the world has ended. Resurrection begins. Those of us who heard the message, the message reached us, etc. We are all resurrected together. All of those who did not receive the message, due to all of these factors I mentioned, they are resurrected separately. And when they are resurrected, they are resurrected with their full faculties. If they died as children, they are already mature. They were blind, they were deaf, they could now see and hear. Whatever faculties which make a complete human being, they will be resurrected like that. And when they come out of the grave, there will be in front of them a wall of fire. A massive wall of fire. And as they stand before the wall, a messenger will come from out of the fire to them. And he will explain Islam to them. And of course the worship of Allah, everything will be explained to them. The essence of the message of Islam will be delivered to them. When he completes that, he will instruct them to enter the fire from which he came out. They will walk forward to enter it, obeying his instructions. But when they do that, the fire will flare up. Most will step back, some will continue walking in. They will be burnt, disintegrated. then the fire will come down to settle. Still blazing fire. So they will start to walk forward. The messenger will tell them, enter. They will start walking forward again. But as they start, the fire will flare up. They can feel the heat. Again, most step back, some will continue. 
And this process will continue until no one steps forward. At that point, no one steps forward. The Prophet ﷺ said, those who went into the fire are those who had the message come to them in their state of mind, proper state of mind, they would have accepted it. And those who refused are those who had the message come to them. They would have refused it. The judgment is done. So we don't know who is who, what is what, what will take place ultimately. So that is something I think will give, especially for those who are considering accepting Islam or those who accepted Islam, you know, a sense of the justice of Allah. That He will not be unfair to anyone. If that relative of us was of ours was righteous, good person, etc. And they are among those who would have entered, then they will get paradise. So it is possible that they will be in paradise, even though they died a Christian or a Hindu. Because if you stop and think about it, as I said in the very beginning, I didn't choose to be born in Jamaica. That wasn't my choice. So if we're going to say that those who are born in Muslim families, they're going to paradise. Those who are born in Kafir families, they're going to hell. And they didn't choose. Then where is the justice? Where is the justice? The common sense tells us it can't be like that. So it's not a matter of what family you're born in, but the choices that you make. You may be born in a Muslim family, but you are just Muslim in name. In your heart, there's no Islam. You're just going through the rituals because everybody else around you is doing the rituals. Your father wants you, your mother wants you, whatever. But if you got a chance to go to America, nobody, father and mother, no community around you anymore, then you'll take off Islam like your clothes and carry on. Who you really are will be seen then. So that's the reality. Inshallah. Would you share your opinion on how important it is to learn Arabic to be able to understand the Quran better or any other knowledge book about Islam? Somehow most of the people doing da'wah know Arabic. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't say that. In fact, probably most of the people doing da'wah don't know Arabic. And they need to learn Arabic. They should learn it. But Arabic knowledge is not uh, spread as it was in the early days. Once the colonization of the Muslim world started, the spread of Arabic stopped. 
they deliberately stopped just as Malay was written in Arabic script which connects to Arabic makes Arabic easier etc Swahili was written in Arabic script uh, Hausa was written in Arabic script you know, and so on and so forth many other countries they were but the, the colonial masters they saw that to cut people off from the Quran give them the Latin script instead replace it and there's a deliberate systematic effort to do that Turkish and so forth so it is important for Muslims in general to learn Arabic and we need to bring it back into our educational systems that every Muslim should have as their second language Arabic if not their first because that is our ultimate connection to the Quran. But sometimes non-Muslims ask, why Arabic? You know, Christianity, in the time that Catholics dominated, all of their worship was done in Latin. And the priests would do the ceremonies and rituals and the people would just sit there not understanding anything but just accepting that was the practice at one point after the reformation etc then they started the process of translating the bible into english and protestants broke away and they broke away from the latin base and they started to use other languages etc and for a period of time it brought people closer to the religion but with the rise of secularism people fled amongst Muslims we need to revive the Arabic in order to bring the Ummah closer to the Quran and to the Sunnah and it also links us in a way which it does right now even with our limited knowledge of Arabic. I explain to non-Muslims why do we have our rites and rituals in Arabic. I explain to them that <clears throat> if we go to China and they made the Adhan in Chinese, you could pass down the road and never know because the mosque doesn't look like a mosque that we have here their style of mosque is completely different so you would never know and then if you went into the prayer and the, the, the imam is reading in Chinese you would never know again he'd be making rukur you're making you know qiyam and confusion so the Arabic unifies the Muslims that we can pray with each other anywhere in the world so it has that unifying element and of course with understanding it becomes a greater unifier and with understanding it makes the Quran more real a living Quran for us Taraweeh instead of falling asleep during Taraweeh hoping that the Imam is faster that he will finish quickly so you can get home huh? that we'll be able to enjoy the Quran 
enjoy it from what Allah has to say to us. Not enjoy it because the Imam's recitation is beautiful. It's like Abdul Basit. It's like, you know, Al-Husri or Minshawi. We have all these competitions for the Quran. But actually, it's something of a disservice because it's turned the Quran into top of the pops. You know. And that's not where the, where the Quran is supposed to be. The Quran is a book of guidance, as Allah said. Hudan lil That's what the Quran is all about. And that's the importance of learning Arabic. That we can take the message of the Quran directly from Allah Taala. But if you have a translation, at least now, this is a thing that we have which in the past we didn't and this is to make up for the problem of <coughs> colonization of the Muslim world that we reconnect with the Quran at least through the translations and know that it is better better in Ramadan because most of us commit ourselves to reading the whole Quran in Ramadan know that it is better to have read Surah Al-Baqarah alone and understood it. Read the Arabic, read the translation and the tafsir. You've understood Surah Al-Baqarah. It's better than reading the whole Quran in Arabic and not understanding what you read. Know that. That's reality. And know that the Sahaba, they said, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said, the one who had learned Surah Al-Baqarah amongst us was called Hafiz. The one who had memorized, learned it, Surah Al-Baqarah, because their learning meant not just memorizing, it meant understanding. Because they said, we used to learn the Quran 10 verses at a time. We wouldn't move on to another 10 until we understood what was in the first 10 and we try to implement it. That's how they learn the Quran. So he said, the one who had learned Surah Al-Baqarah was called Hafiz. Now we reserve that term only for those who have memorized the whole Quran from Fatiha to Nas. We only call them Hafiz. And if you call somebody who only had Surah Al-Baqarah Hafiz, they'd say, ah, what's he doing? Insult. No. But that's not the way the Sahaba looked at it. Because Surah Al-Baqarah has the essence of the Quran. The message of the Quran is contained in Surah Al-Baqarah. So powerful. The Prophet ﷺ said, you read Surah Al-Baqarah in your home, shaitan is driven out for three days and nights. Is there any other surah in the Quran that the Prophet ﷺ said that about? That's telling us something. It contains the greatest ayah of the Quran. Ayatul Kursi. Can we say that about any other ayah? That's the greatest one. So, understanding, reading that Fatiha, 
sorry, Baqarah, Surah Al-Baqarah, with understanding this should be our goal. And beyond, of course, if you can do more, then it's better. But at least take that on as a commitment. If you're now trying to set up a program for reading the Quran, read in the Arabic, read it in English or Malay or whatever, start with Surah Al-Baqarah. Get through Surah Al-Baqarah, having understood. We have tafsir in Kathir now, it's around. We've got good tafsirs out, translated, that you can make sure you've grasped whatever is not obviously clear, you can find out, get the clarity from the tafsir. This is the way to go, inshallah. I think we're going to stop here now. Barakallah fikum. Uh, I ask Allah to accept this gathering as one in which we have sought His pleasure and that the knowledge that we have gained this evening we internalize and try to apply and I ask Allah to guide us throughout our lives to bless us, to bless our children, our families Barakallah fikum Subhanakallahumma bihamdika Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik Seeking knowledge and obligation made easy Thought about studying for a long time Tuition fees keeping you from actually starting Islamic online university has led a revolution in online learning The world's first tuition free degree BA in Islamic studies. Access to the knowledge any place, anytime, anywhere. It just doesn't get any easier than that. Classes, texts, assignments, completely online. Set your own schedule for the semester. No overseas travel required for the exams. Subjects taught by qualified English speaking scholars. Weekly live sessions in virtual classrooms with curricula based on those in El Medina University in Saudi Arabia, El Azhar University in Cairo, and other reputable institutions around the world. Why wait any longer? You pay just a symbolic registration fee and are ready to begin the adventure of higher education. The most diverse student body of any university in the world, 130,000 plus registered students from 217 countries. Log in to the website for more details www.islamiconlineuniversity.com